0: Leonard Cohen suggested there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. I am here again, uh, though this time I'm about 18 inches away from David Osborne. That's the distance between me and my screen. (laughs) <laughs> and last time, last time we spoke, other than 10 minutes ago on the phone, uh, we were sitting across from each other at a coffee shop in Union Station. And this was before masks um, and stuff. It was a very different, uh, wonderful conversation. And we exchanged books. And we're both passionate about education. Um, it's a, it, it lights up both of our eyes. So I'm looking at David sitting, I guess, in his study, or office or something office like that. yeah office, and, and David, would you just share with us how you got here? What's your story to this point in your life?
1: Oh wow! Well, uh, I won't go back to the beginning, but uh, let's just say I I came out of college with two passions. One is changing the world, because uh, you know I grew up in the '60s and. Uh, started college in 1969 and was profoundly impacted by the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. And uh, so changing the world and writing. Uh, And so I had this idea I wanted to write books about important topics. And there were really two routes to do that. You could become an academic or you could become a journalist. Uh, I had enough of a sense of academia from college, uh, I have a I have a real taste for the real world, uh, and decided I didn't really belong in academia, so I became a journalist. Uh, learned the craft, was an editor for a while, was a freelance writer for a while, started writing books, and uh, my first book was about governors. It was called Laboratories of Democracy, it came out in 1988, and the thesis was that we were moving from a industrial era to an information age and as a result policy and politics was changing in fairly fundamental ways and you could see it best if you looked at the governors because they're held accountable by the voters for in a whole state it's not you get a good cross section of the population and on top of that they're held accountable for the state of the economy so there were there were big changes in economic development in healthcare policy and welfare policy being crafted at the state level in the nineties. And that's what I wrote about. I mentioned that because the star of the show, I, I picked six governors who were most interesting to write about. The star of the show was a guy named Bill Clinton. Uh, and I got to, as I did the research in Arkansas, interviewed him a few times, traveled with him a bit, um, got to know him. And uh, then my, Second book was called Reinventing Government. And the thesis here was this shift from industrial era society to information age was forcing public institutions to change. Uh, The old model was centralized, large centralized bureaucracies, very hierarchical. The people at the top made all the decisions, the people at the bottom just did what they were told. Um, and they were all monopolies. And that model was increasingly dysfunctional in a rapidly changing world with information technologies. So my co-author on that one and I, Ted Gabler, we looked at innovative governments around the country, local, state, a few federal institutions, um, but not, not too many yet at that time, And you could see a kind of new paradigm emerging, which was more decentralized uh, using competition rather than monopoly at times, focusing on customers, understanding who who are your customers and what do they want, giving them choices, uh, focusing on results and holding institutions accountable for results being mission-driven rather than rule-driven. You know, these bureaucracies we have are just, they've got a million rules and that's what drives everybody. Uh, So getting rid of a lot lot of the rules and focusing on the mission. The book outlined 10 principles like that. And Bill Clinton was running for president when it was published. And because I knew him well, uh, he gave me a quote for the book cover that said every elected official in America should read this book. (laughs) <laughs> and the combination of a, a very readable book about an important topic that kind of crystallized what a lot of people were feeling and a winning presidential candidate endorsing it put it on the bestseller list, you know, which books like this just don't make bestseller lists. I mean, this is this is the only time in history that a book like this has been on <laughs> a bestseller list um, and, and totally changed my life created a lot of demand for consulting and speaking. And uh, I, the Cl- Bill Clinton decided, I was part of the transition on the policy team and put together a little team on reinventing government, we made a proposal for what Clinton should do. He agreed, he put Al Gore in charge of it. Uh, Gore asked me to come down and help get it going. So I spent six months in 1993 in DC helping to lead what was called the National Performance Review, which was several hundred people from, mostly from the federal bureaucracy, creative people, and a few outsiders uh, like me uh, trying to figure out, you know, what do we need to change and putting together an agenda, uh, which to their credit, Clinton and Gore pushed through for the next eight years. In the second term, they relabeled it the National Partnership for Reinventing Government because that's really what it was about. Anyway, I, from that six month experience, it taught me that we really didn't have a sense yet of what strategies were most effective. So I uh, set out to write, a, to, to research that question. And uh, another co-author, Pete Plastrick, and I went and looked at the most dramatic examples of, of fundamental transformation of public institutions, you know, where productivity was doubled over a course of years. Um, not just in the u s but in Canada, in Great Britain, in New Zealand, and in Australia, um, funny thing is, both Pete and I spoke French, but uh, the French still <laughs> loved their centralized state they weren 't doing any of it <laughs> so uh, we published that as banishing bureaucracy in ninety seven and then kind of the second half of it became something called the Reinventor's Field book, which came out in two thousand and Managing bureaucracy essentially said, here are the five strategies that reinventers around the world are using that have the most power. And then the field book said, OK, for each of these strategies, there's a bunch of different tools you can use. So if the strategy is about consequences, creating consequences for performance, positive and negative, you know, you can use competition, competitive contracting. You can use uh, performance management where you establish the results you want, and you reward uh, groups that that achieve those results. Um, You can actually, with some services, put them in a competitive market and say, okay, sell your services to your public customers. Um, So that's just an example. But those two books, uh, we spent close to a decade on them. Uh, They were exhausting. Meanwhile, I was part of a small consulting firm. In 2000, in December of 2000, two things happened that both changed my life. Uh, First, the Supreme Court elected George Bush over Al Gore, five to four, which meant I I had been seriously considering going back to Washington and working for President Gore. Um, And a few days later, my wife came home. She was a physician. Uh, came home and told me she had cancer and her prognosis was six months. Um, It it had been, she was getting ready for surgery on something else and they did an X chest x-ray just as a, as a kind of, you know, check the box and found a big mass in her lung. Uh, She, she went through chemo and an experimental drug and she lasted two and a half years, but But that, you know, it it puts, it confronts you with your mortality.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Um, And, you know, I was in shock for about a month. But when I came out of that, front and center, when you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you could die at any moment, because that's what an experience like that teaches you, you realize that there's something you've always wanted to do. You best get started. (laughs) And uh, one thing I had always wanted to do since I was about 18 was write a novel. Uh, Because fiction, you know, I've been a writer all my adult life. Fiction reaches us at an emotional level. Oh, yeah. And that's why it has more power than nonfiction, typically. Um, Nonfiction is usually rational, reaching our brains. Fiction is, is we get a vicarious experience. And it reaches us emotionally, uh, and i've always I, I had always wanted to do that, and in my twenties had tried once and failed, because um, it's hard. But I had had this idea for a novel that just grabbed me. Um, I decided what the hell I'm gonna try it. Um, not gonna I'm too old to be a you know tormented writer. If this isn't fun, I'll stop. but you know. I've always wanted to do this. I've got this great idea, let's, I'll just try it. And so for the next 10 years, I continued to speak and consult, but whenever I had spare time and many weekends, I worked on the novel. Uh, it's a historical novel and it was finally published in 2017 uh, and actually won an award from that because it's, it's a historical novel set out West uh, from the Western Writers of America as the best historical novel of the year. Very cool. Uh, so after I finished that, I had in 2010 uh, been asked by Mitch Landrieu when he got elected mayor of New Orleans to come down and help him get started because I'd, I'd consulted for him before when he was lieutenant governor. Um, and while I was there, I, I learned what was going on in the New Orleans schools, which is that they were in the, pro- the state was in the process, had intervened in one of the worst districts in America, right, was in the process of turning the schools gradually into charter schools, in New Orleans. And this is something that I had advocated in reinventing government, basically said, you know, we should, it should be decentralized that the people who run the school should be able to make the decisions about hiring and firing and how long their school day is and what's the learning model and what really matters. Um, It should be competitive. It should be focused on results. They sh- the schools, sh- if they're if the kids aren't learning year after year after year, they sh- the schools should be replaced. A better team should be put in that building, and parents should have choices. The, the schools should we shouldn't give everybody a cookie cutter school because kids are different. Uh, they learn differently. They they come from different backgrounds. They care about different things. So let's diversify our learning models and let's give the parents a choice of what fits their child best. Which you can do in an urban area because geography is on your side. So New Orleans was doing it, and uh, I had thought this would work incredibly well, uh, and it was. It was the fastest improving city in the country. So I decided, you know, I've been preaching this, and, and to, to no effect. In the 90s, I made several efforts to, to preach this message, and it, the reaction was always silence. I mean, it was just way out there beyond what people could even imagine. So I thought, now we have an example. What I do best is write books. I'll write a book about this. And I looked around and discovered that D.C. was at the time about 45 percent of the kids were in charters. Right. Denver had a bunch of had embraced charters and what they called innovation schools, which are district schools given a lot more autonomy. Um, So this, you know, I had three great examples. They were three of the fastest improving cities in the country probably the three fastest improving. I mean, it's hard because there's a lot of apples and oranges. It's hard to say flat out, but clearly New Orleans was the fastest. And D.C. was clearly the fastest improving of those that take the NAEP exam. There's now 27 cities that do that. Um, So, And Denver was way up there. So I wrote a book uh, that came out in 2017 called Reinventing America's Schools, Creating a 21st Century Education System. And uh, to do that, I went back to the Progressive Policy Institute, where I'd been a fellow in the 90s, and we got some foundation funding to allow me to write the book. And after the book was published, we uh, you know, continued. We've got a small team of four people, and we basically um, are trying to convince folks around the country that whatever you wanna call them, what we need to do is create education systems in which Principals and teachers really run the school, because that's not the case in most districts. Central office runs the schools in most districts. Um, Because they have autonomy, and because they won't all succeed, they have to be accountable for performance. And if they fail the kids year after year after year, they need to be replaced. And if they do great, they should be replicated. You know, create a second school, create a third school. So... Uh, that's the second piece, accountability. The third is, as I said, diversity of learning models, different schools for different kids. And the fourth is then give parents a choice because you don't want to, it doesn't make any sense to say your kid has to go to a STEM school and my kid has to go to a performing arts school because of the neighborhood you live in and the neighborhood I live in. That So yeah, give the parents choices. Um, and then have a funding system where the money follows the child so that the schools are effectively competing with each other. Um, we think that districts should do that, and some of them are. There's about 20 districts around the country that have some form of quote innovation or partnership or Renaissance schools, and they're working. Uh, so we, we are supporting those efforts and writing about them and doing events. And we just published a uh, guide to, innovate, to implementing innovation schools with lots of how-to information. Uh, so that's my story, that's where I am. <laughs> Sorry, that took longer than you wanted, probably.
0: <laughs> I don't think I've ever had anybody take shorter.
1: Uh, yeah,
0: it takes you a know, while. I mean, we we are more or less contemporaneous, um, and mm-hmm. my idealism has been the driving force in my life as well, and it still is. I had a friend who's about our age accuse me of being too idealistic not too long ago, I thought, "Boy, that's a very strange bird to be identified as." I mean, what a horrible thing! Um, a couple of things, actually, several things. What you said. Um, first of all, I think I think part of the problem is that that phrase "charter school." Yeah. I mean, I have baggage about that, I will admit. And some people have very good charter school experiences, and some people associate it for whatever reason because of the news media or or a friend down the street or their own, whatever, have some real baggage about that.
1: I think the reason is simple. Charter schools are a threat to the teachers' unions because most charter schools are not unionized. Some of them are, and they can be, any charter school can be unionized. But most of them choose not to, which means, as the charter sector grows, the unions shrink. And so long ago, they figured this out, and they began to spread the propaganda. And they spend tens of millions of dollars every year discrediting charter schools.
0: Well, I would, I would suggest that that certainly is a major vector in, in, in the, the bad press. Yeah. Uh, but from a solution focus, for me is to um, re, <clears throat> re re packaging sounds so Machiavellian, but to to re, re rebrand <coughs> charter schools so that um, people change the frame in which they first hear it. It's like it's like people who are afraid of snakes when they see a snake, they freak out even if it's a garter snake. People right. who either aren't afraid of snakes or know the difference, when they see a snake, they go, oh, cool, and, and that's
1: framing. Right. Basically, that's why we're putting our focus now on these district innovation schools, because right. as I said, it doesn't matter what you call them, but it's not important. What's important is the dynamics of the education system. Are there incentives for innovation? Right. Are there incentives for deeper learning rather than rote learning, Um, for preparing kids for the actual world and economy that we live in, rather than the one we lived in 50 years ago?
0: Um, And and maybe not just the one we live in, but the one that they will live in, right? Exactly. And 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 that's mysterious.
1: Um, And are the educators empowered? I mean, people don't understand how disempowered are. Public school educators are.
0: Oh, I was a I was a public school teacher.
1: Well, you tell you tell our audience.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I I had I had hair down to my ass. This is uh, in 1971, <laughs> and when I walked in, it was W.T. Woodson High School in Fairfax, Virginia, which has a pretty good reputation for, for whatever the reason, but the principal came popping out of his office, like one of the birds in those Swiss clocks, you know, that, that comes flying out. And he said, you must be Mac, the new teacher. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, I want to, I want to have a couple things real clear with you. And of course I flashed back to being a student when those words meant come into my office, you're in trouble, but Mm -hmm. I was wrong. He said, I work for you. Uh I work for you. And because you're an English teacher, we have a specialist deal with the English department. If you can get 33 students to sign up for a course on anything that has anything remotely to do with the English language, I will find the money to fund it for you. Wow. So my first experience, I taught two uh, six-week classes, one in readings and comparative religion, which he, was my ch- he protected me from the obvious fallout for that one,
1: yeah.
0: and um, science fiction. Uh-huh. And he found the funding for me for the textbooks, and he covered my butt for the pushback. Um, and it was fabulous. And um, I'm not a big fan of the word empower because it's a transitive verb, which means you do it to people. Um, but he introduced me to the idea of power sharing. Uh-huh. Which, okay. Um, that's so that's what we I mean. need. Yeah. And um, he got yanked out of the school because he was too close to the teachers. And he was replaced with a martinet who did everything according to his little principal's manual which he kept on his desk that was about the only thing on his desk so uh, i left shortly thereafter and and uh, i think and this may be my revolutionary zeal i don't know but (laughs) but i think everybody in the school building should be a part of the operation, including the students. I mean, students need to learn political savvy, students need to learn building coalitions, students need to learn that if, if you don't have the money to pay for it, it's not likely to happen. So you can either lower your sites or you can find a different sort, you know, funding stream. I mean, those are the kind of lessons I wish that i had come out of school i mean i was a good student so i could i knew syntax and grammar and calculus and functions and physics and history i mean as much as as it was real i was good at all that stuff but i did not know much about how to run a life you know how to manage a system how to push up against a bureaucracy how to convince people that this is a better idea And here's why, you know, I I didn't have that stuff. Um, So, you know, when you were talking about whatever you want to frame this different kind of school, my, my vision for that is, is a, it's, it's, it's really a learning community. Yes, exactly. And everybody is because I, I believe, as you know, from, from my stuff that, that the the default setting for the human brain and the human heart, because as you mentioned earlier, we are creatures of the heart. Right. We are. I mean, we got great brains, but we got we got better hearts. Um, and um, I think our default setting is to discover. Mm-hmm. That's our right. I mean, yeah. looking at your face.
1: Especially when we're young.
0: Well, but you and I are old codgers, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm I've I got a couple of years on you, but I ain't done yet. I mean, as you said, right? You didn't want to say I I could have written that book, right? So if that is the case, and I think that we have a lot of neuroscience as well as experience that like supports that that's what the brain loves to do, yeah then from a from an education point of view the way i see that is we need to get the barriers out of the way that prevent that because if it is the default setting then once you start to remove the barriers what will fill in that void is excitement discovery connections challenging critical thinking you know all those things are just sort of waiting there in a nascent state because most schools like <clears throat> don't contradict the teacher here. We have a rule for that, right? The, the uh, bell just rang, so we're done with US history. It's like, yeah. no, 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 don't do that. You,
1: you know, there are about 150 teacher-run schools around the country. About half of them are charters, about half of them are district schools. So it doesn't matter, right. although it's harder to do in a district because of all the rules. but. The interesting thing is, one, they're wonderful, and they prove your point. And the interesting thing is, for the high schools, you often find that the teachers are running the school, but the students have a role in the decision-making. And it varies from school to school, but like I know one school in St. Paul, Minnesota, that I visited, they had the students basically write a constitution for the school. I love it you know and there's a, there was a student council that actually was involved in decision making I mean they didn't hand over all the decision making to the students but they understood exactly what you're saying that that part of what's now called social emotional learning you know which used to be character education or right. part of becoming a, an adult is learning you know, how to make responsible decisions about your life and your community. And I'm why go, not start in high school? I'm going to
0: go one step further with that. It's also learning to make responsible mistakes.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? And and, and to frame those as, okay, that didn't fly. <laughs> that didn't work so well. So let's sit down and talk about that rather than, <laughs> which is... Yeah. So I, as, as threatened, I have a couple of questions for you. Now, sure. you were talking about writing your book. Um, I wrote a novel in about 1995 and I had an agent in New York and she campaigned it and Penguin liked it. And I had all this. But, but it was this. She, she campaigned it in several um, imprints and. It didn't quite make it. So I went back, as you did, um, and and I've been working on that. And that's a labor of love. So two questions. The first is, which is what this podcast is about, is about how we frame the pandemic. I mean, I am aware of people who can't find food and people who are unemployed. I understand. You and I are kind of doing okay. Right. Right. And we can frame the pandemic as chicken little. Right? Oh, the sky is falling, et cetera, et cetera. But as Leonard Cohen suggests, and there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. So what do you I see? love that song, by the way. Isn't that a great song? And I
1: love Leonard. Love. Uh, I mean, he's gone now. But I got to see him in concert finally in Boston about uh, maybe five, six years ago. Um, Amazing man. It, uh, yeah. I just love his music, his lyrics, uh, and very, very spiritual man. Um, is that you dinging or is that me? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. me. That's okay. Uh,
0: again, that's a first world problem. So, um, given this crack, given this derecho um, tsunami, how would, you know, whatever image works best for you. Um, what do you see that 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 this huge change in schools and learning and education gives us as a point of restarting, reinventing learning in in a more functional and, and uh, um, true way? Where do you where do you see those opportunities?
1: Well, I'm going to start. <laughs> with the negative, which is, I mean, you're talking to somebody who spent the last 30 years trying to change public institutions like public school systems. I'm enormously impressed by how change averse they are. These bureaucracies were built to be stable. And the old model, you know, top-down hierarchical rule-driven monopolies that model is remarkably stable and it's really good at resisting change. Yep. And that's why one reason it's so dysfunctional today because we live in a world of rapid change and we need institutions that, that encourage people to, to change, to, to do better, to figure continuous improvement, all of that. So the, on the positive side, I would say that more parents have learned just what the quality of education their kids is getting. And some of them are horrified by it. Mm. More parents have learned that they can go out and make choices, um, even create choices. You know, these learning pots that are springing up where five or six families will get together, hire a teacher and, and uh, have the teacher teach their kids during this time. That is going to change the mentality of some parents, and make them more interested in, or less interested in putting up with a mediocre education for their children, and more interested in finding alternatives. Um, And then third, clearly, the entire public school system has had to, you know, kicking and screaming, learn how to use the computer as an educational tool. And frankly, you know, I think I've always said, for 30 years, the computer is the most revolutionary learning tool since the printing press. Absolutely. And, you know, you can wrap the internet up in that. Um, you want to separate those, fine, put them together, whatever. The the combination is revolutionary. And some innovative schools before the pandemic were using it in really creative ways. And, and now everybody's had to struggle with it. and. Some have done a lousy job and some have done a great job, but obviously it's got to have moved us forward fairly rapidly in the evolution of integrating personalized learning using a computer for our students, which is a wonderful tool. And I would never say it's the only tool. Teachers are incredibly important. And for the deeper learning stuff, we need, we need projects and seminars and discussions and all kinds of stuff that don't involve sitting at a computer, but for acquiring knowledge, which is part of what we need, there's nothing more efficient than a computer. No,
0: And and each of us has, in our pocket, an incredibly powerful computer, which uh, gives us access to all recorded knowledge in a heartbeat, you yeah. know? <laughs> <I> mean, So... <laughs> What you just said, one of the things that it that it connects with um, is that whatever this a new education is going to look like. Uh, first of all, I don't think we're I mean, this is called back to different because, you know, when let's say COVID just tomorrow, we wake up, it's gone. Everything's not going to snap back like a giant rubber band to to, to, to the way it was a year ago. It's, right. That ain't going to happen. And I think education in particular is going to have to grapple. With people going, you know what? I could have done that at home. I could have done that sitting in a park on my smartphone. I don't need a teacher to say in 1492. I don't right. Yeah. And the second piece of that um, about the role of teachers is that this platform is not a threat to teachers. I think a lot of teachers see it as a threat. It is not a threat at all. No. But it's liberating. It is liberating and if i as a teacher can go ooh this is what i need to do differently this is how i can be of use and service to my learners right okay? then teachers aren't going to be extinct except the ones who are like oh no you got to have overhead projectors and uh, you know and i have to
1: stand in front of the class and, and front front teach the class. them i have to pour the knowledge into their little heads
0: Right as you know, I call that the funnel vomit method of- <laughs> <laughs> so I mean i am I am back in school i'm I'm gonna be certified as a counselor in alcohol and drugs because uh, wow. it's important to me and boy, we're gonna need it and unfortunately, I mean all my classes are online obviously and of the what have I taken so for I've taken nine courses so far eight of them were simply a PowerPoint transferred to remote learning. You know, it was, it was yeah. SOS. Okay. Yeah. But one of them used the platform very well and it was exciting and the, and the, and all the students were engaged and it was like, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. So that's there. So I need to ask you one more question because I have another uh, thing at 1030 and I will need to have another cup of coffee, okay. uh, which is my last vice.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad you have one. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: if if, if a, a doctor said, well, you have to give up coffee. It's like, no. <laughs>
1: Coffee's good for you, actually. If they coffee, say
0: well, um, yeah. I mean, there lots of ways. Um, I like the taste of coffee. Yeah. Um, when, I was, when I was drinking, I, I stopped drinking um, a while ago. I just got tired of it. And I didn't like the way it made me feel. Um, I love the taste of beer. You know, I like the taste. Mm-hmm. I like the taste of coffee. I mean, I'll even drink decaf because I like the taste so much. So yeah. here's this is the uh, kicker closer question for you. OK, when you are no longer around to bother your children and your grandchildren, either because you've moved elsewhere or however you traveled away. And at some point, your grandchildren, right, your grandchildren, I do. They, they ask their parents. I don't know if they, they call you grandpa or papa or whatever, but grandpa. Yeah, yeah grandpa. Actually,
1: Actually they I don't, don't yet because they're only 10 months old. Oh. Well, <laughs> my oldest daughter had twins last February. Wow. Twin girls, and they are adorable. And I'm over the moon.
0: <laughs> well, and, and you know, David, that they're going to call you what they want to call you (laughs) no matter what you want to do especially because they're girls and I mean no disrespect but little girls are real strong about stuff like that so anyhow so um your grandchildren asked their parents in our in our virtual classroom our teacher was talking about the year 2020 and how stressful it was how did grandpa handle himself What would you like your kids to tell your grandchildren? What would be your legacy about how you handled yourself in this very, very, very strange year?
1: How I handled myself. Um, Well, so the two, I'm going to talk about the two grandchildren who exist, not the future (laughs) ones because I'm expecting more. I have four children. Three of them are married. Um, So, their parents lived in Manhattan, in a two bedroom apartment. And when my daughter, my son in law, you know, took a week or two off, but then had to go back to work when the after the kids were born, my daughter had a long time off, like four or five months, but in August, she had had to go back to work. So um, that didn't work. Two bedroom apartment, Two, pe- two adults working two babies and somebody to take care of the baby that equation didn't work so on July 2nd they arrived here I live in Gloucester Massachusetts and uh, we have a house that's pretty big and uh, they spent the next three weeks here and then they went back She wasn't working yet. They went back to New York for a few weeks, and she started work around August 12th. So on August 10th, they arrived here again and spent another three weeks. And it was wonderful. So, and we, you know, I took two weeks off and helped with the kids, the babies. I I would hope that they would say that grandpa really helped us out. by. We spent six weeks with him that summer. Um, And, you know, it was wonderful to have someplace to go. Wow. It was certainly wonderful for, for me and my wife.
0: I can see it in your face.
1: Yeah.
0: I can see it in your face. You know, one of the things about, or several things about this platform is that when we're like in a big room, we're not seeing everybody's facial expression simultaneously, right? I mean, we look over right. here. At this right? So that I find fascinating and a blessing. The other thing is that we in our pre-whatever COVID life, we didn't get to see ourselves talking while we were talking. And <laughs> and that's a mixed bag, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, God, do I look old? What happened? Oh my yeah. God, I can't <laughs> believe I wore this shirt. You know, all of a sudden, we're like very <laughs> self-conscious or not. But the other thing, and this struck me like a lightning bolt, is previously in our life we looked in a mirror to see ourselves, right? Right. But when we're on the screen, we're seeing ourselves as other people see us. We're not seeing a mirror image now. Right. The right. first time in our lives, probably.
1: I hadn't thought of that, but you're right.
0: And and I think that that you know how our, our brain has to frame stuff in order to make more sense. So this is this is like all of a sudden our right hand became our left hand. So I think part of what's happening is our brain is going, all right, left, right, left, right, right, right. And I'm making this a different kind of reality. And the mm-hmm. other thing I discovered, because I'm doing all my teaching online now, which 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 I really love, is that you can move people's screens around when you're on Zoom. You can you can drag and drop people's little pictures. Mm-hmm. So you can like, I wonder what David would look like if he was sitting next to Harriet. Let me move him over here. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this. It is a brave new world.
1: It is. it is. And it's it's that's one good thing about the pandemic, that it's forcing the education system to finally grapple with the potential of these wonderful machines.
0: And it's forcing neighbors closer together I don't know if you've seen it where you live, but I've seen a real sense of connection, you know, uh, people whom I only knew their cars.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now I know who they are. I know what their dog, uh, how their dog's arthritis is coming along. I know what school they're. I mean, all of a sudden it's yeah. like living in Mayberry. Yeah. You know, we're all talking to each other. We like we like time our dog walks so that we can see each other for God's sake. Uh uh-huh. yeah so this all the ripples from this gigantic meteor that has fallen into our pond are are i find them fascinating and maybe this gives us a a a slap in the face to like you know what we need to reconsider how we see mental health we need to reconsider how we see schools how we see government how we see connectivity how we see our differences, you know, because on the screen, those differences don't exist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right.
0: I told you I'm an idealist and (laughs) that is is (laughs) never going to change, brother. (laughs) (laughs) David, it has been a pleasure. I hope (laughs) we will find opportunities to talk in the future.
1: Yeah, the pleasure is mine. Thank you.
0: I'm so glad I'm so glad you you showed up. When I was I was very briefly um, online dating, uh-huh. and boy, that's a couple books right there. But um, yeah. I discovered something I'd never heard of, which is called ghosting.
1: I've heard that phrase. I'm not sure what it means. So.
0: Well, if you're if you're if you're online dating, ghosting is when the other person just doesn't Disappears. respond. To yeah, they just, they disappear. And, and, and so when when you weren't here this morning, I thought, I've been ghosted. I thought, yeah, I've been ghosted. David didn't do that. Yeah,
1: no, I'm just, you know, the, the the real reason is I'm not working this week. I'm d- doing errands. I'm helping my wife move the furniture out of her father's house. Her father died last September, and the house is being sold. And I'm doing other stuff. Still have some Christmas shopping to do today. Yeah. So, you know, normally I, I'm at the office by nine, and I'm looking at my calendar first thing, and that that's not what I was doing this morning. So it it was anyway. One I apologize. More,
0: one more dislocation.
1: Yeah. Right. Exactly. All <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's what life is. <laughs> a series of dislocations. <laughs> All that stuff. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Have a great holiday. Oh yeah.
0: Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you.